Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Good morning. So we're covering here our year-end results at the end of February, and clearly we'll do an update in terms of current trading and outlook. I'm the CEO of the group and have been since the group was founded in 2006. And Karen, who was in the same room as me, has been our CFO uh, for a long period and helped also help found the group in 2006. So at a glance, it was a highly successful period for the group on a number of fronts. Not just the fact that profitability was significantly increased. I believe we had seven profit upgrades in the period. Profit, adjusted profit of over 80 million with strong margins of 12%. And it is fair to say that the performance was significantly helped by tailwinds, which have been fairly well documented. But the group actually made a lot of progress in other areas. We hit 160 outlets, which after 15 years of growth uh, is clearly showing strong growth over those 15 years. We have continued to successfully develop a bricks and clicks omni-channel strategy. Uh, both in sales and increasingly in service, and that's put the group in a very strong position, albeit our competition in the franchise sector have done a good job, actually, in terms of developing similar types of strategies. So we actually think we've got a very, very strong foundation on which to grow further scale, and I think the growing of further scale is, is really important. We've got a stable management team that's been in place for over 15 years. Uh, we've got an owner mentality. Uh, we treat the company Uh, money as if it's our own, which I think is very important. We're in it for the long term. We've got significant asset backing and actually no net debt. We've got net cash. Uh, Tangible net assets per share is 66.8 pence, which is significantly ahead of the current share price. But crucially, uh, a successful company, and in our minds, a successful company is one that generates cash and generates profit. is underpinned by two key elements. One is strong colleague engagement, and we have a great place to work score in April of 88%, which is clearly excellent. And those surveys provide a myriad of management information that we can act on. And secondly, if you've got a strong colleague base with great technology and process, you should be able to deliver phenomenal levels of customer experience. And it's the customer experience which drives the cash and drives the profit ultimately. And if you can see at the bottom right of this slide, a uh, used car net promoter score uh, done through a third party of 86.5%, which we believe is sector leading and puts us in a very, very good position. And actually our service and new car customer experience scores measured by the manufacturers are also well above average. So we've got a very strong platform with which to attack and with the level, with the changes that are coming and the sector consolidation that's clearly evident, we think we're in a very, very strong position. And now I'm going to pass over to Karen, who's going to go through the financials. OK, thank you. If we can start with the financial KPIs on the next slide. The group's growing revenue is 32% compared to FY21, which was, of course, impacted by lockdown. If we look back to the pre-pandemic period, we also grew our group core revenues by approximately 4%, largely as a result of rising vehicle prices. Those supply constraints and strong pricing disciplines helped us increase gross margin to 12%, and we delivered a profit before tax of 78.8 million, and at the adjusted level, 80.7 million. 
The group generated positive free cash flow of 44.2 million, and we ended the year with net cash, including the treatment of used vehicle stocking loans as debt of 16.2 million. The strong result helped us grow our basic EPS to 16.64 pence, and as Robert has already mentioned, our tangible net assets per share grew again to 66.8 pence. If we turn over to the profits bridge now, you can see that clearly, and this actually compares um, our result for FY22 against the pre-pandemic period of FY20, given the significant impact of lockdowns in FY21. Um, you can clearly see the big news here is used vehicle gross profit generation, with the core group delivering £38 million more gross profit from this channel than it did in FY20. All of this uplift is driven by increased margins, and Robert will talk shortly about the market dynamics that helped drive this result. It was a similar story in new vehicles and in fleet and commercial, with the group growing gross profit in each of these sales channels despite reduction in sales volumes. And again, this is all down to margin generation. If we look more closely at after sales, we'll see that service gross profit declined slightly, and that's a consequence of technician resource constraints, particularly in H2, and the pay action that the group took in order to aid recruitment and retention, with technician salaries been shown in cost of sales. Parts and accident repair gross profit displayed growth with the group taking share in these areas, benefiting from initiatives such as the centralization of our accident repair management within dedicated management and with benefits of central parts hubs, for example, which drove additional revenues through the parts channel. Government support, nearly all of which is business rates relief, has been shown separately. And you can see that the core group saw an increase in operating expense of approximately £11 million, with by far the most significant of this growth being related to performance-related paying commissions. We also invested in salary, for example, in our central sales customer experience centre and digital development teams in terms of increased headcount. And in addition, finally, we invested in marketing to increase awareness of the group's core brands. Acquired dealerships generated an additional 4.5 million of profit with the favorable market conditions helping these now fully integrated businesses deliver in excess of the expected level of profitability that we had for them. This sets out our capital allocation focus, which has been broadly consistent across the time. So firstly, we want to invest in the growth of the group and then obviously look at our returns to shareholders. We've continued to invest in growth, spending 9.5 million in the year on acquisitions, and a further 6.2 million of capital expenditure in respect of our multi-franchising activity to grow the operating capacity of the group. All investment decisions involve strict EV EBITDA hurdle rates to ensure that we don't overpay. Similar return metrics are applied to decisions such as the one to purchase freehold and long leasehold of the group's Derby multi-site for seven million pounds post year end. And this was a strategically important location for the group in previously leasehold premises. Dividends were re-established in FY22 and are an important element of shareholder return. Our stated policy is to achieve a cover of three to four times of EPS in terms of EPS cover. Clearly, the cover in this financial year is a lot higher than that as a result of the record results achieved in the year. Lastly, we look to share buybacks and £6 million has been deployed in the year on the purchase of 9.8 million shares. And since the year end, we've purchased further shares. Finally, to the balance sheet. The balance sheet strength of the group is very strong, underpinned by 
tangible assets, long freehold and long leasehold portfolio of 236 million. Current assets, you'll see declined year on year, and this is a result of the supply constraints, the well-publicized supply constraints with new vehicle inventory falling significantly. Used vehicle inventories in terms of number of cars held also fell, but this was more than offset by increases in the price of used vehicle inventory, which Robert will go on to shortly. Overall, one other mention in terms of the balance sheet is we've got a retirement benefit asset, which means that there is no cash call on the group from its retirement benefit fund. I'll now pass back to Robert on strategic update. One of the success stories the group has had, and it was purposeful, is we believe actually having scale and having large brand awareness is very, very important. And we measure that monthly with YouGov across the UK. This car is an interesting example. So, for example, Bristol Street Motors, which is our largest brand, in April actually had prompty brand awareness in England and Wales, because it doesn't operate in Scotland, so we've got Macklin in Scotland, actually had a 50.9% prompty brand awareness, which was the highest of any automotive retailer, uh, including, interestingly, Cinch and Kazoo. Now, in full fairness, there are three big players in automotive retail, branding-wise, Bristol Street Motors, Arnold Clark, and Evans Hellshaw, and they're always very close, but in April, actually, we were number one. We interchange actually between Arnold Clark and ourselves in many months. And um, part of that is due to the work we've done on branding. You can see here this is a W Series. W Series is Formula One for women. And actually, the races occur on Formula One weekend at the same uh, location as Formula One. And we've actually got two cars doing very well in it. And it's not because we're particularly interested in motorsport. I've never been to a Formula One race, actually. Um, it's because it's, it is very, very good from an ROI's perspective in terms of building prompt brand awareness, particularly, actually, at the moment when television advertising costs are uh, double-digit inflation. So there's a good example. And if you take this weekend, uh, we had a BTCC uh, at Brands Hatch with very strong Bristol Street Motors branding on two cars going around on ITV1. Uh, we've got uh, Durham Cricket, where Ben Stokes, the England captain, was yet again there emblazoned with his virtue branding. So we are growing these brands, and that does help, I think, particularly in today's digital environment, in making sure that we take our fair share of the market. So if we go to the next slide, this is a summary of our strategy. Uh, at the top, we've got what we aim to do. So at a local level, we aim for our dealerships to be the best retailer in the town. We aim for the group to be the most admired and respected. And in the middle is our mission statement, which is putting the customer bang in the middle of what we do to live an outstanding customer motoring experience, honesty and trust. And that makes total business sense, actually, because as we'll come on to later, uh, it is all about conversion of customers and retention of customers at the end of the day. So we've got a four pronged approach with regards to strategy. These do evolve over time, but are broadly consistent. Um, We've had a very consistent strategy, really, from day one. First goal is growth. We believe that even though we've got 160 outlets and we've got 4% of the new retail car market, 5% of the van market, there is a long, long way to go in terms of building scale. And to have the brands and to have the technology, you need a certain scale in order to fund it. So our objective is to continue to grow the scale of the group. 
We've done that in a number of ways in the period. Karen referred to multi-franchising. Multi-franchising where you put one dealership building, but it has more than one franchise in. So an example of that would be we relinquished the Ford franchise in our Dunfermline dealership on Fife. And today, 12 months ago, it was still operating Ford. Today, it is same building, redeveloped with Renault, Dacia, Hyundai, and Vauxhall in it. And actually, the economics of that is really interesting because if you, if you add those four franchises up, um, you, you would effectively get 12% market share, probably, whereas Ford was probably batting on 9% market share. And you think, well, what is the relevance of that? Well, market share translates into after sales. So we've had to actually add more uh, technicians in the workshop. And my broad assumption is if you add a technician who's 100% efficient, it's about £50,000 of additional net profit. So you can see the economics of the model works actually really well. And the way the manufacturers are not really demanding capex, they're demanding smaller showrooms, not larger showrooms going forward. There's more and more scope for multi-franchising. Another example would be down south in Beaconsfield, where actually we've got Mercedes-Benz dealership in the high street at Beaconsfield, and we've now put MG next to it, which is very interesting, actually, for premium and volume sat together. We've also done quite a considerable amount of expansion. Now there's more in the pipeline with regards to Toyota. So when we're looking at franchises, we've got to actually sort of project forward five, 10 years. Where are the where's the growth uh, who's going to dominate who's got the ability to do electric vehicles and different power chains and we have effectively come to the conclusion that that toyota will be the one or two biggest franchise in the uk by 2025 uh, we had one dealership in chesterfield then we bought two before christmas and we've just been awarded the west of scotland uh franchise arnold clark were terminated by toyota we decided with toyota that we were going to uh, build yeah, four dealerships. Uh, we opened the first one on the 1st of April. We've got another one opening for September. Then we'll need to do a couple of building projects. Um, but effectively, there'll be no goodwill paid for those businesses. It will equate to about 5% of the UK volume of Toyota just in the west of Scotland. And, and I think is a good example of, of shareholder value generation uh, by working very closely with the manufacturers. And, and to be fair, a lot of our growth actually comes directly from liaison with manufacturers as opposed to us going out and doing our own thing having said that there is a decent pipeline and i think there could be some interesting opportunities either falling out of some of the sector consolidation that's going on or indeed uh people deciding that the new world of digitalization and potential agency models isn't for them the second element is digitalization i've got more on this later on but i am absolutely firm of the view that we have a very resilient business model being franchise retailers virtual motors has never lost money despite operating within a global financial crisis and a global pandemic. But you do need both clicks and bricks. I wouldn't like to operate a pure online retailer. In fact, I wouldn't operate a pure online retailer. And I certainly wouldn't operate one that had bricks but didn't have an internet presence. So the development of both of those is interesting. And when you went back to that W Series car, you'll have seen the branding of click to drive click to drive is a sub-brand which we use to sort of promote omnichannel online retail. Third element, colleague and customer focus. This clearly has to be where the action is because if you haven't got the right number of colleagues and you haven't got the right caliber of colleagues in the business delivering for customers, you haven't got much of a business. So we put a lot of effort into colleague satisfaction. We have done a lot of work in the last 12 months. You could argue some of it came out of the thinking on the Undercover Boss program, but possibly be overstated. 
but we've extended maternity pay. We have extended holidays for long service. We did a full pay review with regards to all colleagues, actually, in the back end of last year, which was necessary given the changes in the marketplace and high level of vacancies, et cetera. And we've got more changes in the pipeline to come uh, in, in the areas of, for example, balloting. So there's a lot of focus there because we have to deliver for the customers. Um, the customers are not, in the main, anti-dealerships, far from it, actually. Um, I, I don't subscribe to the view that everyone's clamoring to do online retailing and cut dealerships out. I just don't think that's the reality of where the British public actually are, or indeed like to be. The fourth item is ancillary businesses, and we've been very successful actually in growing ancillary businesses. The Vans Direct acquisition, where we paid £7 million for Vans Direct about three years ago, that made £2.5, £2.6 million PBT in the financial year in terms of van online retailing and has good growth prospects and clearly if you look at the acquisition of vanarama by auto trader uh, vanarama actually was a loss-making entity but was sold for 150 million pounds plus 50 million pounds earnings which leaves me no end actually um, we've also developed uh, continue to develop our online parts business uh, east parts and that has now expanded with the with the acquisition of a global parts retailer called uh, Powerbooks. So we're building some really nice complementary businesses for uh, the growth of the group. So how do you make 80.7 million pounds? The answer is sell less cars, which is a really perverse statement, but clearly is true. And if you look back the last 20 years, it is absolutely clear that the overproduction, particularly in Europe, the pushing of the new car market where far too many cars were pushed into the market led to significant margin destruction and a pushing of a market where, which reduced both the profitability of retailers and the profitability of manufacturers. What the pandemic's done is clearly curtail production, variety of reasons, COVID absences, parts dislocation, shipping dislocation. We've now got issues with China, lockdowns on parts. We've now got Ukraine. I was absolutely staggered, I'll be brutally honest, when I discovered that Ukraine was such a big part of component manufacturer for manufacturers. I've received notification of 3,800 of a particular model of car, which are complete, but waiting for three parts, all of which are made in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine was the center of the wiring loom industry. Um, which is a bit strange if you think about it, since they've effectively been at war since 2014. But anyway, uh, you can't second guess manufacturers. So we're now in a position where we've still got supply constraints. And if you actually look in the period where, you know, the new car market was much depressed, in a very strange word, depressed, it sounds like a negative thing, but actually supply constraints have actually been the making of the profitability because we've had lower new car sales. They've been pushing retail and vans, uh, because they're more high margin, they've been cutting back on things like motability and fleet, and that pushed up new car margins, which was useful. The bigger effect, actually, was the effect it has on the used car market, because if you don't sell a new car to a private customer, you don't bring in a three-year-old product exchange. If you don't supply fleet and daily rental companies, they don't deflate. And we are in the absolutely bizarre situation whereby we are selling used cars to daily rental companies because they can't find any cars, which is the utter reversal of normal 
things. And actually what we've seen in the past two years is broadly like walking up the higher reaches of the River Thames and finding it's flowing uphill. It is just not what happens. Uh, so this supply constraints in used cars, coupled with really strong pent-up demand last year, led to a major increase in used vehicle values, 25, 30%, depending on the period. Um, used cars clearly normally depreciate in value. That has a massive impact in terms of margin. Um, all manner of things. The longer you hold a car, the more money you make, which is a bizarre concept. Now, what we have seen in the past three months is a more normalized uh, pricing environment, whereby we've seen uh, used car values dip by about 2% a month, which is far more normal, just very abnormal in the relation of the last two years. And actually, since October, we've seen in the market, in franchise retailers and independents, actually, a 10 to 15% fall in used car volume. A couple of reasons for this, I think. One is the massive explosion in used car values. Uh, clearly led to the perception in the customers and a perception that was actually real that actually new car uh, new cars are actually better value than used cars and actually uh, it was a ridiculous headline in the telegraph on saturday you know used cars twenty six thousand pounds more expensive than new cars which if you stand back for a moment and think the average used car we sold was twenty thousand it's clearly not true uh it's a clickbait headline but we haven't seen demand shift from used into into new Order banks in new are record levels, you know, 20,000 uh, new cars on order in our order banks. The other thing we've seen, and you can see on the right-hand side, this switch in demand, not massively, but still there from petrol and diesel into BEVs and particularly hybrid. If you want a pure electric vehicle, you're buying a new one. I think out of 8,000 cars in stock, I think last week we had 136 pure electric vehicles in used cars. So that's also leading to a shift from used into new. I think what we're now potentially going to see going forward then is a similar issue with regards to the cost of living and, and pressure in terms of consumer demand, but it's too early to call that for sure. If you look at how all that translated then into our volumes, uh, you can see actually new cars, motability, fleet, agency, commercial, all down in terms of bike flight entirely as expected. A couple of things to point here. You can clearly see retail and vans down less than motability and fleet. And you can see we took market share. So every channel we sold more cars year on year in comparison to the trends in the market generally. There's our market shares there, which have been growing and will continue to grow as we add more dealerships. The impact on profitability, though, really came through in margin. If you've got a new car and supply is constrained, you don't discount it. And that's led to a significant improvement in new car margins. But the real kicker, as seen on the profit bridge with the 38 million increase in gross profit, is this increase in gross profit per unit on used cars, £1,200 in FY20, up to £1,700 in FY22. That's where the profit comes from. You then take Battery electric vehicles, I've said obviously the market is moving that way, partly due to supply, partly due to people actually want a, an electric vehicle. And the market as a whole, as a private market, actually grew 122%, but the group like for like grew 169%. And we've actually done very good work on electric vehicles, getting our business ready for it, be it investment in charging points, training, and focus. And you can see that in the outperformance there in terms of the retail sales. Lots more to come there. There was actually a government scheme called the Electric Vehicle Approved Scheme, where actually you could have a series of standards to meet themselves, the service you actually get audited and approved. 
And we have more dealerships on that electric vehicle approved scheme than any other retailer in the United Kingdom. I mentioned digitalization. Clearly, everyone will be aware of the, uh, the competition the sector is theoretically feeling from uh, the likes of Cinch and Kazoo, who are certainly spending significant amounts more on marketing than we are. But I think the franchise sector have done a good job, actually, in developing a bricks and clicks on the channel strategy. And just to give you some idea here, uh, we have 50 in-house software developers and robotics engineers in-house building software continually. And some of the success you can see is here. So online reservation of vehicles, 4,300 uh, vehicles were delivered from a £99 reservation fee up uh, 110%. In October, we developed a personal shopping, I call it concierge service, whereby if, you, if we can see you're struggling on the web, uh, we will intervene, get you into a uh, remote sales process, find your videos, basically be a personal shopper. And since mid-October, we've sold 400 vehicles through that route, and that is very popular with customers. In terms of pure online, I mean, I'm sure we could talk for hours about pure online and business models and things like that. We five years ago last week, launched online retailing, pure online retailing of used vehicles. We were very early and very few people followed us. And we're now in a position whereby last year we sold 900 cars purely online, which was doubling year on year, which all sounds fantastic. Until you put it into the context that we actually sold 89,000 used cars. So online retailing is very, very low volume. And the probably, well, the biggest, arguably the best used car retail in the United Kingdom is Arnold Clark. Um, and they sell well over 220,000 used cars a year. Uh, absolute machine. They don't do pure online retail. They do the £99 reservation fee and they're very, very good digitally. And I think that tells you what the reality of online retailing used cars is. And for all the uh, high-powered marketing and spend, um, which does provide us with some competition in terms of marketing spend. And as a Burnley fan, it's broadly irritating when somebody has to do it on their shirt and the heaters. Um, you know, this isn't a major item currently in the marketplace and 75% of customers still want a test drive. So I think there's some challenges around pure online, though we are clearly on the pitch. Finally, after sales, we shouldn't ignore. It's a big chunk of our profit. Um, digitalization of after sales is vital. Over 73,000 online service bookings taken. We've had digital strategies to get new customers. And I think there are some headwinds in after sales coming. So, for example, there are about 1.9 million new cars that would have been sold in normal times that have disappeared. They've never been made, never come here, never been sold. And that is going to effectively lead to supply constraints in the used car market for the next four or five years. That's actually, in some ways, a good thing because it will underpin values uh, to a large degree. But it will mean there will be a lower zero to three year vehicle park, uh, which is this, the historical hunting ground, actually, for franchise retailers. Now, we've done, we've preempted all this last couple of years by developing digital conquest strategies. And we're acquiring 28,000 bookings of largely older vehicles from people we never sold a car to to try to actually move our after sales vehicles. Uh, operations forward. And the average age of vehicle that we now service uh, in our operations is 4.61 years, which is not far off the sweet spot because the, the maximum maintenance spend of a 
car in the UK is at five years old. So we're doing a lot of work to overcome the headwinds that, that are clearly going to be there with that part change. Um, and I think we've been pretty successful in that. We've got a lot of work to do on digitalization. Um, if you think about when you order a Deliveroo and you think about how, how you have your car serviced, there are clearly some differences. You sit at home for Deliveroo and you actually have to go to a dealership ultimately to deliver the car for a service. But the technology is nowhere near good enough. Uh, you should have an app or a or web uh, component whereby you can you can check the car in. You can have the video delivered to you of us checking the car. You can press a button to say, yes, I'm going to have that extra work done. Uh, yes, you can pay the bill uh, remotely. And the check-in process is very much quicker. And also, where is the car during the process? So when's it invalid? When's it ready? Because actually, we get a lot of inbound phone calls, and I'm sure if you have your car safety, or where is my car? When's it ready? Absolutely ridiculous um, waste of everyone's time. So there's a lot of technology to be developed there, which I think will put us in a good place. Right, if we change current trading and outlook, there are three key priorities for us in the business, and this has been the case since the 1st of January. The first is cost. I do worry that in an inflationary environment, people actually have less cost discipline because they get used to seeing costs going up and they don't challenge enough. So we've got a lot of work underway to make sure that mentality is not in place in our business. We are actually doing a lot of work clearly on energy, um, which is a problem for everybody, domestically and in business. And we're actually using a behavioral scientist to actually see how we can change the behavior using sort of nudge theory within the business to try and save energy as opposed to just trying to tell people. Uh, but there's a lot of work on costs. Uh, to try and keep costs under control. The second element is conversion. If we're going to go into a cooler period of consumer demand and we are spending money on marketing, we want to maximize the conversion of that marketing spend into sales. And this is real nitty gritty stuff. So, you know, how do we change our website to make sure we go from a session to an inquiry? How do you make sure if somebody inquires to get a video within one hour from a sales executive? Uh, how, if somebody leaves a dealership without buying, how do we make sure we follow them up effectively and, and sell them a car? We estimate, for example, that 30% of the people who don't buy a car having visited the dealership and had an offer are still in the market for a car. Um, and our work shows that actually our teams in the dealerships think that those leads are dead. Uh, we're doing a lot of work now to make sure we've got processes to get those people back into dealerships to actually sell the car because we need to drive that conversion up in order to maintain sales. Uh, finally, customer experience. And for customer experience, really read retention. Uh, we need to retain more customers that we've already got, as opposed to continually conquesting our way to victory. So here, it's making sure that we've got the right teams in place, the right resource, the right processes, and consistently followed. And we're pretty good at it, actually. And on retention, making sure that we're as focused on retention as we are on conquest marketing strategies. And there are some real avenues of, of opportunity here. Our used car retention, despite sector-leading customer experience, is, I think, low uh, at 18% over four years. It's actually better than uh, average in the sector, but we think we can drive that forward quite significantly. And as uh, Karen alluded to, we have invested in a new sales uh, customer experience center with a view to doing centralized prospecting that I don't think really it was being dealt with.
Current trading in March and April actually was very pleasing. We saw a same level of profitability year on year, which given the fact last year we had rate support coming through, this year that disappeared, but clearly we had a much better March from a quarter one volume bonus standpoint on new cars, which was missing due to lockdown the previous year. So over 19 million profit we've got to be happy with. Margins are still strong. Volume supply constraints are leading to still very strong margins. If we look forward, where are we? Well, we're not going to see vehicle supply constraints discontinue anytime soon. Well, I think we're probably into next year. Uh, you get differing views, but and it's very, very uncertain, very, very difficult to predict when cars are actually going to come. But we think supply constraints are there for quite a while. That's actually good news because it means margins will be strong and used car values underpinned. We clearly now have uh, consumer confidence at very low levels. And will that translate into changing demand? We've certainly got some visibility that people are coming in wanting to actually downscale their monthly payment. Probably makes sense. But we just need to watch that. And we need to watch the scale of any downturn. And what does that do in regards to used car values? Though I personally think it's way too early to say. And you've also got to be careful making comparisons because what are you actually comparing with? What is normal uh, in the past five years? with Brexit, consumer confidence issues, clearly pandemic lockdowns, and then massive pent-up demand last year. So actually, that's quite an issue. Uh, we've got to be vigilant on costs, and we're clearly seeing continued cost pressures, hence the strategy around cost conversion customer experience. In terms of strategy, we will execute continually the strategies around growth, digitalization, colleague and customer focus, ancillary businesses. We've got a real passion for what we do. To be honest, we have just augmented our senior team with an internal promotion to chief technology officer, which provides us with more bandwidth to develop that technology piece. And one of the things that is really crucial is that you've got strong manufacturer relationships and are in continued discussion with manufacturers around implementation of agency and also what opportunities there are for us to grow. And I see quite significant opportunities over the next couple of years because some people don't like the look of what the new world looks like, we actually take a view that uh, manufacturers need profitable retailers and therefore uh, we will embrace the changes and, and uh, try and maximise. Karen's gone through the balance sheet. Uh, clearly, we're in a fairly unique position of having net cash even after used car stocking loans. And that provides us with both resilience and indeed significant firepower for future growth. And that's the end of our presentation. Tremendous. Thank you very much, Robert. And we have a lot of questions. So the first question, could you clarify why the margin barely moved going from 11.8% to 12%, but the pre-tax profit more than tripled? Uh, well, the turnover number is a big number. So small changes in margin make a massive difference in terms of PBT. And if you improve your gross profit margin and you don't change your cost base, or you keep your cost base nailed down, which actually in a pandemic is easier said than done, was actually relatively straightforward, actually. Then you make a significant surge in terms of profitability. Small changes in margin make big differences to, to profit. Tremendous, thank you. So on costs, as demand and profit softens in the future, will you be able to reverse higher staff costs? Um, well, that's a very interesting question because it also depends we're not no we're no longer fully in control of staff costs no. because the government has introduced a minimum wage which keeps increasing and increasing 
And therefore, where a labor market's going is, is actually quite interesting because if you say there is going to be a consumer downturn and that leads to a recession, then you would envisage, especially with the interaction of a high minimum wage, which we've certainly got, uh, then you'd envisage that people would look to uh, reduce labor inputs and maybe uh, do more capex and try and get more productivity, which is clearly where we'll try and do and have done um, using robotics and all kinds of interesting things. Um, the real answer is if volumes go down then we flex our workforce accordingly in chunks so for example sales executives sales executives broadly sell 120 to 150 cars per annum so if our volumes go down we we flex that and at the moment we've got this strange situation where we've got tight labor markets with the prospect potential of the consumer slowing down so we've actually got over 400 vacancies and and this you know if we are if we are minded to flex costs then clearly that's relatively straightforward because you flex people you, it's much easier to fire people you don't actually employ so you know that is something we're putting our mind to but we need to be we don't want a self-fulfilling prophecy of taking the resource out and ended up with lower sales that's the other way around so it is something we are minded to, but there is an element of flexing that can be done on, on, on staff. And on freeholds, how much is market value as opposed to book value? And do the sites have alternative use? I don't know what the market value of the freehold property is because we, you, you, you know, for 99% of them, we, we are getting those properties for existing use value. Uh, they are therefore stated at historic cost not and depreciated an element mm-hmm. um, rather than market value now where is the state of the uk property market now there are less empty dealerships today than at any time in the past 20 years around two percent of dealerships are empty which is actually making my life very difficult because i want to expand and i want to find dealerships and there are very few spare dealerships the other thing to say is in terms of alternative use Clearly, there is alternative use, though planning does come into play a little bit there, but there is alternative use. We have consistently uh, reported profits on property disposals. You'll see every year pretty well we have the same. At the moment, one of the challenges for motor retail, I think, in terms of an electricity group like ourselves, where we're actually sometimes, let's take Toyota in the west of Scotland, Arnold Clark kept there for Toyota dealerships and refranchised them. So we have to ostensibly either refranchise our own or, or find land or dealerships. And land values for alternative use has really changed, actually. I mean, if you go back 20 years, it was food retail, non-food retail. That isn't where the action is now. That could always outbid us. It's now actually industrial uh, distribution centres and residential is where the, the money is and, and there's therefore competition for, for land use. So I'm comfortable that we're not overstating our tangible assets for sure. Uh, I think there's value in our portfolio. Um, I'm relatively suspicious about charter surveyors uh, on the grounds that the value of a property from a charter surveyor standpoint is how much rent are you willing to pay, how long a lease are you willing to do, and how much of an RPI inflation increase are you willing to sign up to, which I think it's a broadly false picture, to be honest. So uh, I think we are comfortable with our freehold property portfolio. 
The company's shares trade at a significant discount to the net tangible assets, the vast majority of which is freehold property. This means that the market currently believes these assets would be more productive if sold off for alternative use. What's the company doing to change the market perception that their assets are unproductive versus alternative use? Uh, nothing. All we can do is set out the strategy of the group deliver financial performance as best we can with operational excellence. It is then up for the market to decide through its own capital allocation decisions over the medium term to decide how capital should be allocated. I don't think it's up to the company to start outlining strategies about, you know, we're not selling it off for this, that and the other. We are a franchise dealership group in it for the long term in partnership with manufacturers making long-term commitments to property use. If the investors of the company decide actually that that is not the right strategy, then market forces will play out and it will not be the right strategy. But our, well, our job is to set out the strategy, to deliver on it, and then investors decide whether they want to invest. Thank you. And one more question on the freeholds. How proactively will you be seeking to buy in the freehold interests in your more strategic leasehold sites? That's a good question. And that comes down to capital allocation and balance. Mm -hmm. um, and probably Karen's probably best place to go through the capital allocation decisions. Yeah, so when we, we look at obviously scheduled returns, we look at strategically, uh, uh, for example, the Derby one, uh, that is six operating oh. outlets on a significant site uh, with a lease that was due to end in a short period. And we did not want to space significant rent um, uplifts on renegotiation of the leases. For such a strategic location. So we will run like we do for any investment decision, uh, a view of future cash flows generation, EV EBITDA ratios, and we'll make a decision on, on a case-by-case -case basis. Make sure we don't overpay. I mean, we need to have sufficient funds to fulfill the number one strategic goal, which is yeah. to invest in additional businesses, which give us a return in, a, in, a, in excess of our weighted average cost of capital. Sure. That's our primary thing, but we have such a balance sheet, actually. And I think there have been issues in the last 12 months with values in terms of buying businesses. I think people got carried away, actually. So we had capital and we thought that was a good use. Thank you. And regarding share buybacks, recent buybacks seem to be an increasingly compelling capital allocation strategy, given the shares discount to tangible net asset value. Can buybacks now be expected to continue at a similar rate on an ongoing basis? Well, it depends what happens, because our primary focus would be the allocation of capital to further activities that generate a return in excess of weighted average cost of capital. So if those opportunities are significant, we would then not do share buybacks. If we believe we've got capital that we can do growth opportunities and share buybacks, then we would do share buybacks. And at the moment, I think that, that is the case. It could change in 36 hours, to be honest with you. But the point that the questioner makes around, well, I think there are three pertinent levels in share buybacks. There's one, the current share price, two, the net chance of asset per share, and three, the intrinsic value. And when you look at what the sector has seen, some of the consolidation activity, and you apply those metrics to ours, intrinsic value is probably, you know, fairly buoyant um, and justified. So I think there's a good case for share buybacks. Thank you. 
And moving on to the profit bridge, sales commissions are included in the operating expenses rather than cost of sales. Could you clarify where labour costs and worker bonuses sit with each of, within each of your sections, new use, service and fleet? It's quite easy. Um, all salary costs sit in operating expenses with the notable exception of technicians' productive work, which goes through cost of sales. Great, thank you very much. And regarding profit from used car price inflation, a nominal 40% price increase was given in the results, with price per unit up 43.6% in the presentation. What kind of mix do you have in terms of age? And is the higher figure due to a change in mix in age and or brand? Good question. I don't think there's that much due to mix age and brand i actually think this is more to do with the price inflation of used cars in fact we've been taking trying to get take great strides to actually reduce what we call our standing value or cost per used vehicle and there's good reasons for trying to reduce standing value which is used car prices have gone up and i don't believe the british public's got richer so the core demand if you think about a public that's under pressure on direct debits and wants to reduce its cost of monthly motoring they're going to be downgrading the value of the car and the monthly payment and therefore anything less than £10,000 is very, very good news. Um, so we are trying to reduce our standing value per unit. That is, to some extent, problematic due to scarce resource, though there are things we can do and I think we've made good strides in doing it. The, the bit of the market that the mo is the most tight is the 0 to 1, 0 to 18 month stock and that's come down like an absolute stone um, and therefore i'm tempted to say actually mix has gone the other way <laughs> really uh, and actually we should have seen prices come down but the, the way the weird market has worked they haven't come down at all so i, th I think we'll see this sort of moderate over time i, I if we assume two percent book drops each month that would be my working assumption. Uh, and this creates big operational problems, really, because if you were a sales manager promoted in the last two years, you've never known news car values come down, which is odd. And we are now doing a shed load of work. We've got fantastic systems and graphs by dealership that show us where stock is against the market, how often we've repriced it, um, I mean, you can get a good view of a, of a dealership stock in about 25 seconds. Um, and we're doing a lot of work with the dealerships on that because people's perception, a bit like, I guess, private investors and where, where their views on the market are, um, people's perceptions lag reality. And I've still got a couple of people, though I think there's a couple less this week than last week, who still think they can charge whatever they like for used cars rather than actually applying normal strategies and pricing decisions. But we're using the grass to make sure they're recalibrated. Thank you. So based on what you're saying, and he goes on to ask, using the 40% price inflation and 135 million average stock level and commission not taken in costs of sales, is 135 times 40%, so 54 million, a good estimate of used car gross profit tailwind? And if so... Well, it, well, it, isn't. it isn't actually, is it? Clearly. So what that calculation fails to take account of is that we have a 35-day stock term. 
So we've turned our used car stock every 35 days. So, uh, which is actually significantly quicker than the competition. And this has always been part of our strategy, really. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, in April, we ran a sales event in used cars and we sold 1,900 more cars than we would have done had we not run the sales event. Which actually meant, and remember the book's dropping 2%, which actually meant that our stock is cleaner, less aged, which means I'm now buying cars at lower market price than the competition. The competition still have all their expensive cars, so I'm now undercutting them. So if you undercut them, your stock turn improves, and then you can undercut them again. So you're quite right. The calculation really should be 135 times 2%. That's your monthly potential pill if, you, if you're not moving your stock quick enough. Our job is to try and make sure that we're ahead of the game. Does that mean margins are going to go up this year? No. Margins will, I think, start to normalize. And I think we've been fairly uh, clear on that. Uh, at the moment, they are still significantly above where they were even this time last year. Bertie's acquisitions, including properties, seem to be of higher multiples and less ROI metrics than Virtu itself. Is there important strategic objectives behind the need for Virtu to prioritise grow growing the business? And if so, what are those? Otherwise, from all return perspectives, as well as I assume stability and confidence in the existing business, it would make sense to much higher emphasise buybacks mainly, and perhaps even increased dividends to a point where Virtu's equity is valued equally or to a premium compared to its acquisition alternatives. Given that Virtu has significant and stable position in the market across the UK already, it's fair to question to what benefit does Virtu need to highly emphasise growth? Well, it's fair to question if you don't understand where the market's going. So from a technical investor standpoint and there are people who follow this um then yes you're dead right mathematics would say that you should prioritize significant buybacks and excessive investing in growth the board believe actually that in the let's take the mckinsey's hierarchy of capital allocation share buybacks is the less thing you should do assuming you can find projects which provide you with a return in excess of weighted average cost of capital so we think share buybacks have, buybacks have their place. If we had no growth opportunities in excess of the way to average cost of capital, we would be doing significant buybacks. But we actually believe scale is important strategically. Uh, you will see in the next 12 to 18 months the emergence of, in my opinion, mega supergroups with significant percentages of the UK market. That then increases their ability to build brands, increases their ability to build digital platforms. And we will need to be part of that or we will have no future. So the number one item on that strategic slide was growth. I understand the theoretical argument. I just think there is a difference between a company with a purpose to generate long term value. And I don't necessarily agree with that proposition. And I theoretically, I have some sway with it or actually in practical terms. You've got to try and stick to the strategy and the strategy is actually right. I don't think getting smaller, which is actually what significant share buybacks would do, 
having an inability to invest in growth opportunities would actually lead to the nirvana of higher long-term shareholder value for those remaining shareholders. Thank you. Um, there's a question on potential dilution. Share-based incentives for managers are undoubtedly an excellent way to encourage an owner's mentality across the group, although potentially dilutive share options now account for 4% of Virtu's issued share capital, compared to about 2% in full year 21. Will new nil-cost options be issued at a similar run rate going forward? Yes. Yes. Thank you. And I've got two questions on um, M&A, which is many of the company's competitors have been bought by private equity or a competitor. How would the company be able to defend against any opportunistic bid that doesn't fully value the business? Well, it's the last bit that's really interesting. Isn't it? Um, we are a PLC. And therefore, if someone thought they could better run this business and better drive value for it, and they put a bid in at a significant level, then the board would clearly have to consider that. And that is just fact. Uh, what the question was is, how would we defend ourselves against somebody who put a bid in that wasn't at, let's say, intrinsic value? And I think we would have to take everything on its merits. And I think we could put a pretty good case. It would then be up to the shareholders to determine what then happened to the company. And that is the reality. Um, you've also got to factor in into our world manufacturer consents. They are not to be taken for granted, manufacturer consents, which is why private equity have never really made great inroads into the sector, or indeed wanted to, for that matter. So, you know, we could be entering a different period where we've got different ownership models. There may be very few PLCs left in the sector over time if recent moves are sort of extrapolated. Um, but we're confident we've got the right strategy. We seek to communicate that the best we can. We seek to be operationally good at what we do. And then it's up to the market to determine then what happens. Tremendous. Thank you very much. And the annual report says you saw an increase in 12 million in customer deposits in the year. But what is the approximate total and where do the liabilities appear in the accounts? Um, oh, the approximate total, I think, is around a £25 million mark. And the liability sits in um, trade um, creditors, actually. Thank you. And your calculated net tangible assets include the pension surplus. Does that mean you think this may be realisable at book value at some point? And also, who bears the administration costs of the pension scheme? Uh, the company bears the administration costs of the pension scheme. And if it weren't realisable, we couldn't recognise the asset. Thank you. And um, another question on M&A. The buy-sell market for dealerships in the US, for example, seems to be extremely buoyant, with strong dealer profitability and healthy goodwill multiples being paid. How does the UK compare and how might this impact Virtu's future capital allocation strategy? Well, the US first. I think things have moved on a little bit, actually, in the US. Uh, I think we are start they are starting to see used car values coming off. Um, so I think that the outlook for the US is not quite as buoyant as it's, it was six months ago. 
the franchise contracts in the US are a lot more pro retailer versus manufacturer than they are in the UK. Uh, I think that's always had some degree of uh, impact in terms of um, valuations. And indeed, I have had experience many years ago of US investors plowing into UK motor retail, then one week later realizing that the franchise contracts were different and they're failing back out. So that's, that's the US. The point, though, is a good point, which is clearly in a very buoyant market where you had to be particularly rubbish not to have a good result. Uh, valuation metrics in the last 12 months have got harder for Virtue Motors up to this point because clearly profits were up. We apply our investment metrics. If it doesn't work on the investment metrics, we don't buy it. So we, I think we flagged at the half year that I expected a bit of a lean time with regards to acquisitions because we weren't going to be willing to pay the money that other people might pay. And my view on it is other people weren't right long run. So, and the board are of that mind. Now that doesn't mean there are no opportunities because as we've shown with the total dealerships in the West of Scotland, you know, the manufacturers are really um, on the pitch and, and that provides opportunities irrespective really of, of people making decisions to exit. So I expect the, I expect the consolidation that we have seen and is likely to see to actually take competitors out of the pitch for buying dealerships, which I think is to our, our advantage. And I would anticipate as trading conditions cool, that we'll see values more aligned to reality in terms of the private market. Um, and we'll have to wait and see, but that would be my uh, expectation. Thank you. Would it not be more efficient and transparent to trade all operations under the Virtu name? No, it would not under any circumstances. It might give you efficiency, but it would lead to a worse business. For example, Virtue Motors has a 6.5% UK property brand awareness. Bristol Street Motors has a 50.9% property brand awareness. So binning the Bristol Street Motors brand, I think, would be particularly moronic. Um, and actually, there are major benefits to us of having a premium brand, which has one set of brand characteristics. And Bristol Street Motors speak volume, used cars, new cars, uh, major benefits from that. Um, and yeah, I think you'll, you'll see that in the numbers. Gives us some inefficiency in marketing. I accept that, definitely. And having a separate Scottish brand, given the uh, situation in Scotland around independence and Englishness, uh, I think is definitely the right thing to do. We have one brand in Scotland. It's got a 40% Scottish brand awareness. And, and actually, you also got to bear in mind practical things like school holidays are different in Scotland. So having 0% events when everyone is abroad in Scotland is pointless. So our 0% events are in August in Scotland, in July in, in England, and it just gives you actually big operational benefits. Having, having Thank you very much indeed. Um, Robert, do you have any closing remarks? No, I'd just like to thank everybody for their interest in the company. I mean, we are a small cap, um, and therefore it's important we communicate our message. I'd like to thank Tamsin. I think this platform is excellent, and I'm an avid listener of, of these uh, these podcasts and, and things and just like thank everybody for their interest and great questions actually. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company.
PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.